This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Craig. And Andrew. We're the hosts of Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name's I messed up, <laughs> I messed up the intro because we're off duty this week and we don't we, care. Yeah, um, we don't word. We got senioritis. We don't. We don't care. We were at a wedding this weekend, which was lovely. But I, my, I, my, I'm just dead. I'm my whole. I'm destroyed. My physical, corporeal form is no more. And we knew that this was going to happen, so we called mm-hmm. in some ringers this week. We called in the two bossy dames, Sophie and Margaret, to talk about a love story by Eric Siegel, which you'll hear in just a few seconds. Um, worth noting that Margaret got really enthusiastic at some parts of the show, so there is some adult language, mm-hmm. uh, just because she needed to express herself. Um, Sometimes and, those words are the only words that there are. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and that's just know that, depending on who you're listening to this episode with. <laughs> Um, and there's also like a Margaret's audio is a little bouncy, but I, you can hear her just fine. So um, have a great time with them and we'll be back doing our normal show next week. Andrew, what are you talking about? I am talking about um, Behold the Dreamers by mm-hmm. um, by Imbolo Mbwe. And then, yeah, and then we'll be back in the middle of this to sell you some things, too. So look forward to that. <laughs> See you in a bit. Bye. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. everyone this is overdue a podcast about the books you've been meeting to read i'm not craig and i'm not andrew (laughs) i'm margaret and i'm sophie hi uh we are the editors of the newsletter two bossy dames uh which the boys are going to be writing on our behalf on friday and in addition we're just like general chums of of andrew and craig Mm -hmm. uh Specifically, I run a television podcast with Andrew and Craig. No, just Andrew. Yeah, just the one. Not of well, not just Andrew. No, Andrew <laughs> and our friend Catherine. Also, there we go. <laughs> do not Woo. erase. Do not erase, Doctor Banana Donk. I will never. Could never. I know. Um, and this week we are here on overdue to discuss the classic nineteen seventies weepy love story. Love story. <laughs> By Eric Siegel. Now, Eric, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I would, but it's spelled Erish. Well, it's pronounced like um, like Magneto's given name. It's the Germanic spelling. Okay. Yeah. So is it still pronounced basically like Eric? It is still pronounced Eric. Okay, great, yeah. fantastic. I yeah. had no idea that Magneto spelled it that way. I just assumed he spelled it with a K. Oh no, I think that's Nordic, and Magneto is German. He's definitely German. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you know. Anyway, Eric Siegel, let's talk about him. Eric Siegel, what what can you tell me about this guy? Sure, I will be happy to tell you something about this guy. Eric Siegel was born in 1937, and he died in 2010. And 
his main gig before writing things like Love Story and sidebar, the screen he was a co-writer on the screenplay for Yellow Submarine, the trippy Weird. Yes, the trippy AF Beatles animated film. That is nothing I expected to share DNA with this book. Yeah, no, no, me neither. I, I saw that on Wikipedia and was like, wow, that doesn't actually explain anything, but it no. is interesting. <laughs> but it's fascinating. It is fascinating. So um, he his main thing before becoming a writer of popular fiction was that he was a classicist. Okay. Like, right. Exactly my response. Okay, this is a Just man. Just like Andrew. Exactly like Andrew. That's what I thought. I was like... Probably that's the only thing those guys have in common. This guy is a big weirdo. Um, oh, my God. We really just need everybody to see his author photo. It is something else. We'll encourage Andrew and Craig to uh, to like put a, put a picture of it in the notes for the episode. Yeah. I'd be very curious to know when this author photo was taken because it has such a vintage 70s vibe. Yeah, but he also looks extremely old he looks like three years short of his consciousness just being taken out of his body altogether and put into like a fluted glass jar right like did he just decide that the black turtleneck quasi aviator frames actually very nice tweed blazer like was that is that the look that he decided on in 1970 and just decided to hang on to it forever because i can respect that yeah, and it's not just that. It's also the pose. It's mm. like, I'm holding my chin contemplatively. I'm looking directly at the camera. It's a very sort of like, I'm a psychologist on the back of your self-help book right. in 1972 <laughs> vibe. It's, it's so it's so naturalistic. That's the way that I think pretty much everybody just walked around in 1972. <laughs> That's what I imagine Especially now. if they'd graduated from Harvard University. Especially, which he did three times. Yeah, wow. Undergrad, yes. He got his AB, AM, and PhD all Uh, uh, at Harvard University. The triple crimson. Yep. Mm -hmm. They don't say that. They call them triple eagles. Do they? If you went to BC High, BC College, and BC Law School. That's a triple eagle. Yeah, it makes my mom really furious, right? Because only men can be triple eagles because BC High is boys only. Oh. Yeah, no, I agree with your mom. I do. Um, But back to Eric Siegel... So he basically he was a classics professor. Um, he taught Greek and Latin at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And um, yeah, so he has all these like really you know very schmancy um, accomplishments to his name. Good for him. And when you look at him and you think of Oliver, I don't actually. Well, <laughs> oh, oh, you're saying like if I were to put those two fit when you put those two things together, when you're like, yes. this is the dude who went to Harvard and produced this character. You're like, there's a little yeah. there's a little wish fulfillment going on here. Mm. Maybe some self-loathing. Yes, yes. And yes. Maybe some suppressed homoeroticism. I'm not sure. Mm. Who whomst among us can say. Whomst among us can say. I don't know that I would go that far, but it is uh, it's interesting to note that this person, born in Brooklyn, graduate of Midwood High School, so doggedly pursued extremely waspy pursuits. And then wrote this book about, uh, you know, someone. A super wasp. A super wasp who falls in love with an ethnic. Yeah. 
But interestingly, not a Jewish girl. I feel like if it was a Jewish girl, there might actually be like a little more like I I thought by 1970, we'd all agreed that Italians were white. <laughs> uh, yeah, great question. I don't I right? would have I would have thought that. But it seems like nah. Nah, at least nah, according to Eric Siegel's recollections of life at and around Harvard in the mid-60s. Right. So um, do you want to start in with the plot or do you want to talk a little bit first about like the publication history of the book? Or do you want to do that like as you're discussing the plot? Which do you prefer? This is These are great questions. Yeah. These are terrific questions. <laughs> uh, I think you should share information about the okay. publication history. I'll be happy to do that. Although we should be upfront with the listening audience because this book is like a cool 135 pages long and takes roughly 42 minutes to read. Sophie and I have both read it. Oh, yeah. We've yeah, we've both read it. Um, it took me. I think two hours total. And that is because I stopped a lot of times to yeah. like make furious notes. And uh, yeah. So anyway, it will take you ha- very little time depending on it how fast you are. It will take you less time to read the book than it will take you to listen to us talking about having read the book. There's a high but degree of I'm going to say that liking, the latter yeah. is way more enjoyable. So <laughs> I hope so. I hope people aren't regretting their decision to press play this morning. Um, (laughs) Anyway, yes, Love Story, published on Valentine's Day, 1970. Marketing genius. Mm -hmm. So it started life as a screenplay. And Siegel's agent said, you know, why don't you adopt it as a novel? And the novel can be a preview for the movie. And when you think about it like that, as a a contemporary reader. It makes sense. Everything makes so much more sense. Yes, because um, I think one of the guiding principles of this book is character development. What's that? Yeah. Um, This was... We're not really either going to show or tell you. Right. People like to talk about this book as if it were a romance novel, but that is a lie. Right. It's not a romance novel. It does not meet one of the key criteria of a romance novel. Does not have a happy ending. Does not have a happy ending. Gotta have a happily ever after, or at least like a happy enough for now. Right. It's not a romance novel. It is. I think you described it really well, which is that it is a romantic weepy. (laughs) Yep. Those things are both true. So released February 14th, 1970, and was the top selling book of 1970, and was then adapted into a film, or I guess the, I guess actually it's backwards. It's more yeah. like, you know, if there were novelizations of of movies like Pretty in Pink, like that's, or 10 Things I Hate About You. I think it's much more. In that ballpark. Yeah. Because the, yeah. so the film adaptation was released December 16th, 1970, and was also hugely, hugely successful. Yeah. And like really launched the careers of both Ryan O'Neill and definitely Ally McGraw. Right. So it was the top performing film of 1970, um, grossing over $106 million. The second highest grossing film of that year was Airport, uh, which (laughs) which grossed about $100 million. And then third was MASH, which grossed $67 million. So it was, you know, to me, that's very, that's very interesting. Um, And my copy says that there's over 21 million copies of this book sold. So 
obviously, like, this is something that really touched people's hearts. And I saw on Twitter, someone responded uh, to the overdue announcement that we were going to be reading and talking about this book, saying, like, I cried so many, like, I think it was a fish tank's worth of tears reading this book. Um, and I so I did not cry that much, but I didn't. I did not, not cry, cry at all. Right. Right. Yeah. It's I sad. I, yeah. The death of a otherwise like healthy and vibrant 25 year old is horrible. Yeah. I cried. Yeah. I feel a little bit like it's a little bit like like the ultimate original cool girl like, had to die mm. so that so that a father and son would speak to each other again. Yeah. It's a little the arc of this book for me, which a I didn't like, bit. love. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a great way to kick off talking about the plot. Why don't yes. why don't we why don't we meet Oliver and Jenny? Andrew, we got a new sponsor this week. Oh boy. How do you feel about <laughs> who are they? Tell me more. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, RX Bar. They are uh, makers of whole food protein bars with simple, real ingredients. Um, so if you want to like get swole and you need some stuff to eat, RX Bar is here to help you. <laughs> well, Craig, they're not. I, I hear they're not just good for getting swole. I hear they're great for a number of occasions, including breakfast on the go, a snack at the office, uh, to throw in your bag for the plane. To toss in your backpack for a bike ride or hike, and then the workout thing, like you said. And RX Bar, they uh, they want to build things the right way. They believe in the power of transparency and let the core ingredients do all the talking. They've got all the ingredients like listed right on the packaging, so they sure do. <laughs> They're extremely specific. I was just gonna say, like the mixed berry bar. I've got a few bars on my desk here. Okay. The mixed berry bar: three egg whites, six almonds, four cashews, two dates, <laughs> and no BS. They say no BS. They're also gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, um, sweet and savory, chocolate or fruit, as Andrew was saying, and they have no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. Um, Andrew, do you want to hit me with a couple of the other flavors that RX bars have come in? Um, we got what? We Just on my desk, we got blueberry, <laughs> we got some uh, chocolate sea salt, peanut butter, uh, that's coconut chocolate, I already mentioned it. <laughs> They've got um, fourteen, and then they've of also them. got yeah. they've got fourteen in total. I don't even have all of them. So mango, pineapple, peanut butter, and berries, uh, mixed berry. I think I said all right. There's a lot of berries: apple, yep. cinnamon, mint, chocolate, um, chip, coffee, chocolate. Yeah, yep. a, lot, a lot of good ones, and seasonal flavors also. And they've got a new RX nut butter, and you can you know put that on rice cakes or fruit or pretzels. Um, again, it's all the like simple ingredient stuff. And so I, I've eaten these after races before. And then I was also snacking on just snacking on the mint chocolate one the other day. I'm a fiend for mint chocolate. So I was very pleased. I was very pleased to find it. I like that there's like some, Hmm. some crunch in it. Like there's almonds and, and, uh, what's the other nut in that one? I was just looking at it. Uh, it was a cashews. Cashews is in a lot of them. Um, yeah, so I, I've, I've like this year have been learning like more about lifting weights and like taking good care of your body because I'm 32 and <laughs> I just can't assume that everything's going to work the way it's supposed to anymore. And, and yeah, like pro- I've, I've learned a lot about you're supposed to eat a lot of protein, not just because it helps you get swole, but because it helps your muscles recover and it makes you like less sore the day after it's really, it's actually really 
helpful and and sort of magical vaguely i think so that's it magic protein um for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash overdue and enter promo code overdue at checkout. Again, 25% off your first order, rxbar.com slash overdue and promo code overdue. Andrew, we have another sponsor this week. It's our good friends at uh, the Unspoiled Network, the podcast that uh, take you through your favorite books and TV shows all over again as if for the very first time we're doing as we record this ad we are doing the, our show with natasha on thursday for giant tremaine which will hit like our regular feed in a few weeks but um it's gonna be fun we're, we're gonna we're gonna have a good time yeah we uh, read um bag of bones by stephen king with her last year and it was a super fun episode so it's, yeah. it's I, i'm looking forward to doing it again uh almost every show uh, of unspoiled is hosted by one person spoiled on the whole series and one person who is totally clueless and completely unspoiled the spoiled host guides the noob through their impressions and predictions often with not safe for work or hilarious results uh, if you find yourself wishing you could erase your memory and visit your favorites all over again or if you want a community that understands your obsession unspoiled was created especially for you find out more at unspoiledpodcast.com or search unspoiled on any pod catcher to see the full lineup So we, and suddenly it is the mid-1960s, and Oliver Barrett the Fourth, a preppy hockey player who went to ritzy New England private schools, uh, is using the Radcliffe Library instead of the Harvard Library, because there's less demand for his books there. And some mousy looking brunette gets mouthy with him about why he's hogging up their books at <laughs> at Radcliffe when he's got a library at Harvard that's twice as well funded and she challenges him to ask her out on a date and then he does and suddenly they're in love yep i want to i want to highlight for folks that the um the time frame of this book is spring semester 1964 Thank you. To spring 1968. <laughs> That's it. And and even with that short a time span, there are still just like huge bits where you're like, shouldn't there be? It just feels like there's like 40% of a book that should be here that isn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely like, I don't know, scenes that would indicate the actual personalities of human beings. Any human being. Any at, at all. all. Or how they relate to one another. Yeah. So talk about the, you know, what is, what's Oliver like? What are his tastes, his passions, his pursuits? Hockey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he likes hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he hates his dad. Mm-hmm. Say two. That's it. Yep. I, that's all I got for you. <laughs> also, he's super wealthy and extremely self-conscious wealthy. about it. Yeah. His last name is the same as a last name of a building on the campus of Harvard. Is that a real building, though? You know, I don't know. Okay. I don't know of a Barrett Hall. Okay. Um, If I had to keep track of all of the ritzy named buildings yeah. at Harvard, they're just, it, they just, they, they grow like mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's embarrassed about it, sort of, but then also not entirely, because after he graduates from Harvard Law School, mm. uh. A process about which we get, I think, maybe four pages of information. 
he's like bragging about the kind of job offers that he's getting for various different law firms. And he's talking about how like, well, since the number one guy in the class was a Jew and the number two person in the class was a woman. Also a Jew. Also a Jew. Definitely. I'm in great shape as like a wasp named Barrett. And like every law firm wants to suck my dick. Mm, This is a family podcast. (laughs) They'll bleep it. It's fine. Carry on. Every law firm wants to give me a job. Yeah. And offer him gazillions of dollars. But uh, what needed to happen in order for him to attend law school? What in his relationship with Jenny? Jenny taught and supported them as a private school teacher. After relinquishing her dream. Oh, yeah. Which we're not even, it like barely even gets discussed. It's it's like half a page, but it, it was it was something that made me throw my book, the book across yeah. into the bag. Like I was at the pool. That that's a great place to read this book. And I saw this thing about oh, amazing! Like Jenny's a music major, and she's extremely advanced, and she's taking graduate level courses. And they're both seniors. They fall in love and decide to get married over the course of their last semester of their senior year. The conversation where he proposes to her is actually, she's like, I have this incredible opportunity in Paris. I have a music scholarship. And he's like, you can't go to Paris. I love you. Right. We should get married. She's like, well, we've never said that before. And he's like, I'm saying it now. It's like, oh, boy, wow. And suddenly they're engaged. Good talk, guys. Your relationship and your communication is just amazing. Their communication is garbage. It's so bad. Their whole flirtation method is just being mean to each other. He calls her like a bitch and she's like, shut up, preppy. Right. And, and you're like, like, oh, how adorable and spunky. Her, Well, I feel like her responses to him are totally justified. Yes. And every response to him is justified except the one where she's like, and I love you forever. Yeah. It's very weird. Like, <laughs> then you're like, why? Like, so. he's like, I, what if I told you I loved you? Like after their first date, which isn't even a date. It's just her watching him play hockey. Right. And she very rightly says, and this is a quote, like, I would say you're full of shit. And then, right. like, that's it. He's sprung forever. Like, what? Right. I I don't get any of his appeal. I no. get I get like 25% of her appeal. Like, what 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 uptight waspy guy doesn't love it when like a sassy ethnic girl on is a scholarship is mean to him? They they do actually love it. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Um, but I, like, what on earth does she see in him? She doesn't care about his money at all. You know, in the immortal words of Shania Twain, it don't impress her much. But like, right. What? I think. They're in love because they're in love? Ergo, they're in love? Uh, I guess. Well, this is one of the many things. So one of the foundational truths of this book is that Jenny and Oliver are in love and it's forever, and it's incredibly deep and profound, and it changes them both enormously. What evidence there is of this on the page? Right. Very little. Right. But it's a truth the book puts forward nonetheless. Right. A second truth is that Oliver's father is an asshole, which is also never <laughs> satisfyingly proved by the book. No, not at all. Uh, my, my counterpoint is, is he? My counterpoint is maybe try talking to him, Oliver. Like once, once, just g- give it a whirl, just yeah. see how it goes. 
if there's some tiny kernel of success, even for five seconds, build on that next time. Like, I understand Oliver's seething resentment, but, and like his parents are quite frosty, but like. Kind of? I mean, but like, also so is he? Yes. Yes. So. And, and like his dad, so like he and Jenny have this one conversation, his dad like drives all the way to Ithaca. Right. To see him in a hockey game. Right. And then Oliver's just... Right. I don't... I'm like, okay, if you're... Even if your dad is, you know, chilly and remote and insists on you addressing him always as sir or father, you know, and even if you don't have that much of a close relationship with him because you've attended ritzy boarding schools your entire life, like, okay. Like, all of that, we can stipulate all of that. But if he drives from Boston to Ithaca in the winter... To see you play hockey. To me, that's a really great, like, act of service type demonstration of deep, genuine, appropriate fatherly affection. Yeah. Like, he doesn't, and the dad doesn't even care about hockey. It's not like Oliver's following in his footsteps. The dad was an Olympic rower. Right. So it's, like, not even a sport that he intrinsically cares about. What he cares about is seeing his boy play. Yeah. Here's a scene that I'll just read. Please do. So this is post that hockey game. He got into a fight during this hockey game and he got put in the penalty box and Harvard lost to Yale, ruining a winning streak that all of the other senior men had been on for the All-Ivy Cup. And he's managed to cut up his face. So his dad asks, does your face hurt? No, sir. It was beginning to hurt like hell. (laughs) I'd like Jack Wells to look at it on Monday. Not necessary, father. He's a specialist. The Cornell doctor wasn't exactly a veterinarian, I said, hoping to dampen my father's usual snobbish enthusiasm for specialist experts and all other top people. Too bad, remarked Oliver Barrett III, in what I took to be a stab at humor. You did get a beastly cut. Yes, sir, I said. Was I supposed to chuckle? And then I wondered if my father's quasi-witticism had not been intended as some sort of implicit reprimand for my actions on the ice. Or were you implying that I behaved like an animal this evening? His expression suggested some pleasure at the fact that I had asked him, but he simply replied, you were the one who mentioned veterinarians. At this point, I decided to study the menu. So just like the amount of effort Mm -hmm. Oliver Barrett IV has to put into impugning evil motives to his dad's words right before he gets any fruit out of it is kind of infuriating to me yeah no i mean it's it's willful age appropriate if obnoxious rebellion of a sort again you know he, this is somebody who decided to go to harvard Right. You know, I presume he could have gotten in anywhere, you know, so like there's a part of him that like, sure, he can say like, well, my parents made me do it. And I have all these expectations on me as the scion of this fabulously wealthy and important New England family. But like, it's not as if he doesn't have other choices. And I'm sure had he said to his dad, father, 
I wish to, I don't know, attend the University of Pennsylvania just to cho- choose a different Ivy. Um, yeah. You know, like that would be a, such a radical departure. And, right. you know, major in literature instead of whatever it is that he's majoring in before going to Harvard Law, which is like right. also a like a a predetermined, just straight up fact of his life. Yeah. Like he has no agency, no choice. You know, in fact, he's, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the land right is white like can do literally anything he's white he's a varsity athlete yeah fine he's so fine he has so few worries in this life he has so few worries in this life so okay this all happens uh he and jenny decide they're gonna get married uh he brings her to meet his family they're like not mean to her no the, his but mother he storms out before dinner anyways. Yeah, it's so weird. It's so it's and like so I, weird. I just kept thinking, guy, listen, you definitely have a very good counseling service on campus that will not cost you any of the dollars that you have. You can just go there and talk to a sympathetic person who will call you on your bullshit. And help you develop some of the skills that you need to develop in order to be an independent person in this world. Just so many times I thought that. Go to therapy, please. It's good for everyone. You don't have to be in a crisis to benefit from therapy. Just go to therapy. Just go. Just, if you're this incapable of processing or discussing your emotions, please go to therapy. Just go. Fighting with people on the ice at a hockey game. It's not a therapy session, no, Oliver. It is not. So they get married. Oh, I'm going to read the proposal because it's wild. Please do. And I, I just need people to hear it. Yeah. So uh, here we go. And she says, who said I was going to keep at it for God's sake? I'm going to go study with Nadia Bullinger, aren't I? And everything is told from Oliver's point of view. Yes. So it's embedded in his first person perspective. Mm-hmm. And he says, what the hell was she talking about? From the way she immediately shut up, I sensed this was something she had not intended to mention. Who? I asked. Nadia Bullinger, a famous music teacher. In Paris. She said those last words rather quickly. In Paris? I asked rather slowly. She takes very few American pupils. I was lucky. I got a good scholarship, too. Jennifer, are you going to Paris? I've never seen Europe. I can hardly wait. I grabbed her by the shoulders. Maybe I was too rough. I don't know. Hey, how long have you known this? For once in her life, Jenny couldn't look me square in the eye. Ollie, don't be stupid, she said. It's inevitable. What's inevitable? We graduate and we go our separate ways. You'll go to law school. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? Now she looked me in the eye and her face was sad. Ollie, you're a preppy millionaire and I'm a social zero. I was still holding onto her shoulders. What the hell does that have to do with separate ways? We're together now. We're happy. Ollie, don't be stupid, she repeated. Harvard is like Santa's Christmas bag. You can stuff any crazy kind of toy into it. But when the holiday's over, they shake you out. She hesitated. And you gotta go back where you belong. You mean you're gonna go bring cookies in Cranston, Rhode Island? I was saying desperate things. Pastries, she said. And don't make fun of my father. Then don't leave me, Jenny, please. What about my scholarship? 
What about Paris, which I've never seen in my whole goddamn life? What about our marriage? It was I who spoke those words, although for a split second I wasn't really sure I had. Who said anything about marriage? Me. I'm saying it now. You want to marry me? Yes. She tilted her head, did not smile, but merely inquired, Why? I looked her straight in the eye. Because, I said. Oh, she said, that's a very good reason. She took my arm, not my sleeve this time, and we walked along the river. There was really nothing more to say. Wasn't there, And that's it. (laughs) Weren't there actually a lot of other things to say? I feel like that there were. That's... Loads. Yeah, quite a few. So many things. Yes. So... He takes Jenny out to see his parents. He is a dick to them. Yep. They are fine. Jenny feels fine about them. Uh, and they storm out before dinner. Um, and then Oliver Barrett the third, like, has, like, a coffee meeting with him. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, it seems like you're moving a little too fast. And Ollie's like, what is that supposed to mean? Are you mad about the poor Italian I'm dating? <laughs> are you triggered, Dad? <laughs> And his dad is basically like, eh, could you like maybe wait until after law school to get right. married? And he's like, no, dad, you're <laughs> classist and awful and I hate you. And his dad is finally like, okay, well, fine. If you marry her, you, we're cutting you off. Right. Which is, that is a real dick move. Agreed. I, that's, I, I feel, but I feel that that's really the, the one bad thing he does and it's pretty provoked. It, it, yes. Not by the choice to get married, but by like, he's like, it seems like you're doing this to hurt us and rebel against us. And right. I was like, what would make you say that? And then said he could have just been like, <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm doing it because she's a really special person. Why don't right. we take a little more time getting to know her? Right. But, but at the same time, he doesn't want his parents to get to know her. Like he preempts that happening and then blames it on them, even though... It's his bad behavior yeah. that, like, is the driving force. And, like, even when his parents try to walk it back, admittedly, like, at least a year or so later. Yeah. He he refuses. And he blames, like, Jenny is trying to sort of work with this his parents. Like their to, one fight. <laughs> yeah. And, like, he yells at Jenny about, like, how she doesn't understand like he's like you have this crazy Mediterranean like Mediterranean understanding you're of parents. So, yeah, like you're just too in touch with your emotions, and you think parents actually care Love about their, their children. Kids. And she's like, "Yes, that is generally how it works in a parent-child relationship. Parents <laughs> yeah. love their children. That right. is a normal human attribute." And he's like, "No, it's impossible. These things can right. never change." My dad couldn't possibly love me because he didn't express it in a way that I, between the ages of, I don't know, eight and 24, could readily understand. He has the emotional intelligence of a gnat. I really do spend the entire book wanting to throw him into a volcano. I think that's completely justified. Can I? He's so dumb. He, how does someone that stupid get into Harvard? Oh, I know. Years of wealth and privilege. Yep. That legacy stuff is is strong. 
very real. Um, now that you have read aloud two like really representative selections of the book, um, I want to talk a little bit about what I perceived as um, one of the main influences on the voices of this book, or on the voice, rather. As Fraser would say, I'm listening. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So every time they said, one of them said, listen, or goddamn, I was like, wow, this book is just like a really tepid ripoff of J.D. Salinger. <laughs> um, and so true. I am now going to read you a little excerpt from The Catcher in the Rye. This is from very early in the book, and it is about football, mm-hmm. which I chose because of Oliver's uh attending having also attended a very ritzy prep school and being an athlete yeah all right so here goes the first football game of the year he came to school in this big goddamn cadillac and we all had to stand up in the grandstand and give him a locomotive that's a cheer then the next morning in chapel, he made a speech that lasted about 10 hours. He started off with about 50 corny jokes just to show us what a regular guy he was. Very big deal. Then he started telling us how he was never ashamed when he was in some kind of trouble or something to get right down on his knees and pray to God. He told us we should always pray to God, talk to him and all, whenever, wherever we were. He told us we ought to think of Jesus as our buddy and all. He said he talked to Jesus all the time, even when he was driving his car. That killed me. I can just see the big phony bastard shifting into first gear and asking Jesus to send him a few more stiffs. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, that's absolutely right. He's like a very, very hollow mm-hmm. echo of... Holden Caulfield. Yeah. Yeah. But it's super hollow. Yeah, super hollow. Well, because I think this is the thing about Oliver Barrett the fourth mm-hmm. is he wants... To have his waspiness and eat it too. You know what I mean? He wants to be like, I reject this wealth and privilege. Mm-hmm. I'm marrying this working class Italian girl. Mm-hmm. I don't need my parents' money. We're going to live on her teacher's salary after I demand a scholarship from Harvard Law. And tell her she can't take her scholarship to pursue right? her dreams. But at the same time, like, his only characteristic is his privilege. Right. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. basically all we know about him is that like he's this hulking blonde hunk who's incredibly wealthy. Yep. Who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Yep. Right. So to the extent that he has any appeal, it is due to his privilege. Yes. Right. It is due to the idea of him being this like Robert Redfordian golden god. Just yeah. like throwing aside all that he's supposedly entitled to. But he also, as previously noted, goes back and picks up just as much as he wants to of those entitlements. Right. Right. As but soon as it's convenient for him. Yes. Right. <sighs> Pretty much. Yes. And I'll say that this is one of those things where when you know the book started as a screenplay, you can give it a little bit more latitude. Because right depending on how the line readings of the parents yeah. are done and the right. facial expressions and everything like that, all the stuff an actor would bring to this dialogue, you might be able to have more grounds for the unbelievably ungenerous assumptions that Oliver Barrett the Fourth jumps to right. at the slightest provocation. Right. Like he's, he's actually in some ways and, and his parents, 
they're progenitors for the entire setup of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> like he's he's like every bad thing about Lorelai Gilmore and none of the good things. Yeah. And the way that he, he really insists on perceiving his parents with all of the things that viewers are meant to dislike and disapprove of in Emily and Richard Gilmore. Right. With none of the like the warmth and the frustrated love that uh, Kelly Bishop and the late great Richard Herman bring to those roles. Right. Um, yes. I, so I very much agree with you. I think that, you know, without having seen the film and not knowing what kind of emotional depth, is it Ryan O'Neill? Yeah. Yeah. And Ali McGraw bring to those performances. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Okay. I mean, I had hopes. People <laughs> love the movie. Right. I didn't, but that's right. me. Well, and also, I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm sure some of that is the film being a product of its time. Like, I think there are, yeah, I think the there book are being a product of its time. Yeah, I think it's that, a very fascinating sort of like dip. It's like we understand that feminism exists, and we understand how a woman would comport herself to communicate that she's like a strong, independent woman. Right. Like also, even when she's dying of cancer, she should object to her husband washing the dishes because that's woman's work. Yeah. Let's, shall we move forward in the plot? Like, well, we have to address the most iconic line from the book. Oh God. Yes, I guess. Which is, and this is the frustrating thing about Oliver's relationship with his parents is he really hates them. There's insufficient textual support to show him why. Right. And the only two people with emotional intelligence in the book both tell him he probably shouldn't. So Jenny's dad, who's a great guy, he's Mm -hmm. like a widower and they have this incredibly tight-knit relationship. He's so sweet and loving. He's wonderful. He's in the canon of like underutilized great dads with... um, Charlie Swan. Charlie Swan. (laughs) 1,000%. I was like, I would read the hell out of a book that was just about Philip Cavalieri. Yeah, Philip Cavalieri I and love Charlie that man. Swan. You know that's a man who series. knows his muslins. I mean, exactly. he's a baker by trade. He sounds so great, and I would love to hear about him finding fresh love late in his life. Yeah, same. I would be much more interested in that than the actual sequel to Love Story, Oliver's oh Story. As if this were not already Oliver's Story. Exactly. Thank you. So anyways, both he and Jenny are like, nah, bro, maybe you should talk to your parents again. And he's like, you can't possibly understand, you low-class Italians. Yeah. Oh, God. My father is made of New Hampshire granite (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) Um, So the only fight that Jenny and Oliver have in the whole book is uh, they get, after they're married, uh, invited to his father's 60th birthday party his mom sends them an invitation and jenny's like can't we just go and he's like absolutely not no never she's like are you sure and he's like no she's like well there's an rsvp and he's like well it sounds like that's your wifely duty yeah to manage and she's like i can't bring myself to write a no rsvp to this And he's like, it sounds like that's your problem. She's like, fine, I'll call them. So she calls them and his dad picks up the phone and is like emotional because this is the first time he's hearing from his son in like a year. Because when he threatened to cut him off if he married Jenny, Oliver the fourth stopped speaking to Oliver the third and wife 
altogether. Allison, Tipsy, Bart, Barnett, Barrett. Barrett, yeah. So all of this happens, and uh, Jenny's like, would you just say one thing to him? He's really emotional. Do I really have to tell him no? And Oliver the Fourth is like, yeah, suck it. Tell him no. God. And... And finally, Jenny caves at the end of it when Oliver the Fourth won't come to the phone, despite the fact that she's begging him to. And she's like, Oliver can't say it, but in his own way, he really loves you. Uh, and then she hangs up. And Oliver the Fourth grabs the phone from her, mm-hmm. throws it into the wall, and says, Jenny, what the hell did you think you were doing? I never want to see you again. At which point, she's evaporated from the apartment. So they don't even have a conversation. She just disappears. Right. And then he frantically searches Cambridge for her, doesn't find her, and gets back to their apartment in Somerville. And she's, like, sitting on the doorstep because she forgot her key. And so he lets her in and he goes to say, I'm sorry. And she says, no, Oliver, no. Love means not ever having to say you're sorry. And then they never talk about it. I'm shaking my head so hard. Listeners, you can't see that, but I'm I'm so... It was... I knew that this that was sincerely the worst thing that Eric Siegel did yes. to a, a whole generation of people. I yes. feel like 15% of the highest divorce rate generation chalks up to that line. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Even, even if is... that's not true and supported by data, I don't care. Like I knew that this was the tagline right. for this book and movie. And when I got to the scene where it was first deployed, I realized that it was so much worse than I yeah. could have possibly realized. Yeah. Like, I, could, I am an imaginative person, and never did I dream that it would emerge from a violent confrontation that is entirely yeah. the fault of the male protagonist yep. and his inability to deal with his, you know, very stagnant feelings about his family. Like, yeah, I thought I thought that it was exclusively confined to um, the denouement of the story where Jenny tragically dies and was like, okay, right. that would be bad enough. But this was right. just actively harmful. So bad. So, so bad. Um, my favorite story about this is my college roommate watched this movie with her mom when she was like 14 mm-hmm. and her mom had watched in the seventies and had sort of like a fondness for it, but hadn't right. seen it in a long time. And they were watching it and they got to that scene where Jenny says, love means they were having to say you're sorry. And her mom stopped the movie and was like, Dina, <laughs> you have to know that's not true. Love means having to say you're sorry all the time exactly you will God say bless sorry mom. all the time wow yes yes yeah that is literally what it means love oh. love is the opposite of never having to say you're sorry love is saying you're sorry even when you still think it's mostly the other person's fault <sighs> sometimes yeah sometimes love is sometimes getting so sick of saying you're sorry that you yeah. decide you're not going to do it anymore for a while Right. And then like, and then like having a conversation about it right. and getting to a place where you both can do it again. Just like listeners at home, if you're ever in a relationship where someone throws a phone into a wall yeah. in rage mm-hmm. over an action that you've taken, 
then if you choose to continue being in a relationship with them, you need to do so only after having a lot of deep and meaningful conversations with them that include about how apologies. they process their anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what triggered it in that particular moment, just all sorts of things like that. Lots of things pertaining to that. So many conversations that need to be had. So many. So this is bringing me to the point that Jenny is just a cool girl, right? She's like the original cool girl as posited by Gillian Flynn in Gone Girl, mm-hmm. where she's feisty so you know she has her own life right she has her own interests mm-hmm. but she never chooses to prioritize those and she automatically becomes interested in everything oliver likes like hockey and fights during hockey and despite the fact that like she could go off and have her own life and it would be a very rich and meaningful one mm-hmm. which is important because you have to know she's sacrificing that she's perfectly happy to just be like Oliver's hot wife. Right. And moved to New York with him for this job at a law firm in New York mm-hmm. where her only role in his mind is to like shop at Bonwit Teller. Yeah. Which is like you be know, his hot Italian wife. Right. Like shopping. I would love to shop at Bonwit Teller. I wish they were still open. Same. But like that's not a life. Like her, her life. He, it, Oliver is the instrument by which Jenny's life becomes narrower and smaller and yep. more confined over time until she dies. Yep. Yeah. Let's talk um, about that. Sure. I'm going to throw in one thing first, which is yeah. there's a joke. Uh, when he gets third and is placed on Harvard Law Review, he comes to her and he's like, this mm. is such great news. I'm third. And she's like, well, wait until I meet numbers one and two and then we'll see about it basically being like i'll leave you for someone smarter than you and then he talks about how like he was so in love with her that he actually did like jealously check in on who was first and second and he was like oh the first was some skinny jew she wouldn't like him anyways and the second was a girl so i just used her to make uh jenny jealous and in my fantasy obviously jenny meets the girl and has a not even late in life, early in life realization that she's bisexual and leaves him for Philippa. And they move to Paris and are lesbian lovers together and she doesn't die of cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Bella I mean, Landau. Like, he didn't give her the cancer. Right. That we know of. Right. When I when I read that thing about, like, he names the, the, the woman who's second in his class. Bella yes. Landau, Bryn Mawr College, class of 64. And my initial thought was, oh, like... Did this author cross paths with Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the year that she was at Harvard Law? And and I, I looked her up and I remembered, okay, no, it couldn't have been her because she went to Cornell and she was a little bit older. Like, they wouldn't have crossed paths. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, then I obviously I was like, okay, this like he's so specific about this person who was number two in class ahead of him, you know, were there like Jewish students from Bryn Mawr who are at Harvard Law? 
-hmm. in that time period. So obviously I have filed a request with the archives at Harvard University to find to find out this information. I have not yet had a response. I had a very nice like automated response that they received my query. And Mm -hmm. when I get that information, I will share it with the listeners of Overdue Podcast. And it's not just because I am a Jewish graduate of Bryn Mawr College, but it's not not because I'm a Jewish graduate of Bryn Mawr College. And I'll Um, say that like, uh, that like, if you want the real love story, folks, Mm-hmm. It is the notorious RBG. One thousand percent. Watch that documentary because it takes place at like the same time. Yep. Only it recognizes that like the interesting character is like the young woman from like tough circumstances mm-hmm. who wrestles her way into an institution of enormous privilege on scholarship. And then make something incredibly impressive of herself. And the man who, like, you know, you you read this book and you think to yourself, oh, boy, all men in this time period. What a bunch of garbage heaps. And then you remember, wait, but Marty Ginsburg was a man in this time period. And he's pretty much the opposite. And he was sincerely, seems like, pretty delighted to play second fiddle oh, yeah. to his beautiful genius wife. Right. And was himself a successful tax lawyer. Like, they pursued these careers you know, together, and it, but yeah. it became clear to him immediately that she was going to outshine him professionally. And he decided that he was going to make, like, his main life's work, making sure that she could do that to the very best of her ability. Yep. So, like, I just, I, it makes me reject the idea. Like, is is Oliver Barrett the Fourth even broadly representative of men in that time period? I don't know. Like, it just seems yeah. to me that a world in which a Marty Ginsburg can grow up and be himself and be the husband of Ruth for Oliver Barrett the fourth yeah romantic hero yeah that's what I would say yeah so anyhow he doesn't put his wife first no his wife comes second they move to New York yep and decide they want to make a baby they they try and it's not going anywhere and he's like real preoccupied over whether he's infertile or she's infertile they go to a doctor and the doctor calls them back in each separately. And he's like, it's Jenny's fault, isn't it? And the doctor's like, well, it's nobody's fault. And he's like, well, which one of us is malfunctioning? And the yeah. doctor's like, Jenny. Great and he's frame. like, well, what can we do? There were all these treatments you talked about. And he's like, nah, bro. Jenny can't have babies because Jenny has leukemia. She is dying. It'll be weeks or months. There's nothing we can do about it. P.S. I lied to her earlier and told her you're both still fine and fertile and can have babies. Uh, and you're the only one who knows she's dying of cancer. So you should probably clue her in sooner rather than later, at which point I threw the book across the room. Yeah, it made me And Sophie did the same and then also researched. Yes, I did. Um, So, yeah, so here's what I found. Uh, This, I'm going to read a bit of the abstract from an article uh, published in 2016. It's called The Truth About Truth-Telling in American Medicine – a brief history. So, okay, so transparency has become an ethical cornerstone of American medicine. Today, we all have like the expectation that our doctors are going to tell us like yesterday, my doctor called me with some blood work results. And she was like, everything's fine. I'm very pleased to say and I was like, that's great. Thank you for telling me it would never occur to me in a million years that she would call my husband about this, or my parents, 
mm-hmm. about this. I'm the patient. She's the one I call. Okay. But it was not until 1979 that a majority of physicians reported disclosing cancer diagnoses to their patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So the concluding sentence of this abstract reads, We conclude that the history of disclosure is not yet finished as physicians still struggle to find the best way to share difficult information without causing undue harm to their patients. And one of the um, papers that they cite from um, the mid 20th century um, is uh, talks about how. Okay, this was in 1966. On the basis of his observations in a veteran's hospital in 1966, Glazer proposed several factors that influenced the physician's approaches to disclosure. Few doctors get to know each terminal patient well enough to judge his desire for disclosure or his capacity to withstand the shock of disclosure. Some doctors simply feel unable to handle themselves well enough during disclosure. Others do not tell because they did not want the patient to quote, lean on them for emotional support or because they simply wish to preserve peace on the ward by preventing a scene. And that is right. As recently as 1961, 90% of physicians preferred not to disclose cancer diagnoses to patients. This was despite the results of a 1950 study showing that a vast majority of patients, here's me editorializing, surprise, wanted to know the truth. Yeah. So so what I'm hearing is that um, there was no law obligating doctors to inform their patients of terminal diagnoses, that probably there was some paternalistic um, rationalization of, well, you know, there's nothing we can do anyway. Why would I tell this woman? Why not just let her live and enjoy what she can out of life until it becomes obvious that there's something wrong? And also, it seems like there's insufficient training in medical school and during residency on how to break terrible news to patients. But the fact is, everyone dies. Yeah. At some point, everyone has a terminal diagnosis. Right. So you would think that this would be like a foundational skill that doctors and other medical professionals learn. You would think, I don't know. I'm just riffing here. This is obviously just outrageous and ridiculous. (laughs) But as someone who knows she's mortal, I would really (laughs) super duper appreciate it if my doctor would just tell me if, you know, one day there is this news. Yep. Anyway, that doctor... We both agree. Should have his license revoked. Yeah. That's garbage. Yeah. Oliver then goes home and does as he was instructed to and behaves normally. Great. Which is a terrible instruction to give. Yep. Maybe it'd be like, go home and tell your wife what I, a coward, was too scared to tell her so that she can go about dealing with the end of her life in a way that feels appropriate to her. Right. Uh, And he finally, and this is like 90 pages later, thinks like, oh, gee, Jennifer wanted to go to Paris and she gave that up to marry me instead. Maybe now that she's dying, I'll just take her to Paris. And he buys tickets and he goes home and Jenny's like, I'm not going out that way. And he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, I went back to the doctor because you were being hella weird. Yeah. And I was like, tell me the actual truth, doctor. And the doctor told me I'm dying. So I know what's up. So that's. 
Scene one of her dying. Scene two is she's like playing Chopin on the piano and then she's like, I feel too ill to go on. We need to go to the hospital. And they go to the hospital. And then they get to the hospital and he doesn't have health insurance. Yeah, that um, sounds like not correct. Because for sure, you know, I don't know, obviously, the full history of health insurance in this country. But I know good and well that by the late 1960s, employers were offering health insurance to their employees, particularly schmancy New York law firms, law firms. of this period. Yeah. There's no way he didn't have health insurance. That is nonsense. But it's very important that he not have health insurance. Yes, for plot reasons. Because it allows reasons. him to have another emotionally constipated scene with his father. <laughs> yes, such a good, ac- accurate description. Oh so my God. he frantically, so he checks Jenny into the hospital and is like, I don't care what it costs. And then he frantically drives to his dad's office, his mm-hmm. bank office. Yep. And he's like, Dad, I need money. I can't tell you what for. And his dad's like, could you maybe tell me what you need the $5,000 for? I'm definitely going to give it to you regardless. And even Oliver is like, I could tell that by asking these questions, he was just hoping to talk with me a little longer. And yet, despite the fact that he knows his dad is just hoping to talk with him a little bit longer, mm-hmm. he like can't possibly do it. And his dad is like, did you get some girl in trouble? And Oliver's like, yeah, sure, Dad. That's what happened. And his dad's like, okay, well, here's the $5,000, son. Take it. And and he's like, thanks, dad. And then he leaves. He's such... Still, having not told his father, just like, hey, my wife is dying of cancer, and I need this money to make the end of her life okay. Right. <laughs> just like, that's just like such an easy thing to tell them. So anyways, he goes back to the hospital, and he has some cute scenes with Phil Calaveri, and then... He's looking at Jenny like there's too much guilt in his eyes. And she's like, you should never feel guilty for all that you took from me. And I'm like, "Eh, Um, maybe he should, mm, though. Yeah. (laughs) You know what a great way to stick it to your parents would have been, Oliver Barrett IV, if you actually wanted to? Say, I'm not going to go to Harvard Law School. Instead, I'm going to follow my poor Italian Incredibly talented, wonderful wife. To Paris. Mm -hmm. Well, she studies... With this incredibly prestigious teacher, and she's going to take advantage of her scholarship, and I'm going to work as, like, a bartender in an English-speaking... I'll, I'll go teach at the American school. Yeah, whatever. In Paris. He has nothing I'll, to I'll worry about. Hockey. Yeah. We'll live in faculty housing, yeah. you know? Like, that would have been a great way to stick it to your parents. And then at Oliver least he would have... the fourth. And then at least he would have had the satisfaction of knowing, like... Jenny oh, man. saw Paris before she died. And got to pursue her dreams before her yeah. life was cut short to, at the age of 25. Got to mature and experience anything in her life other than her apparent adoration of you. Right. And just doing everything in support of your not actual dream. Like, yeah, it's n- it's never clear that he's like psyched about becoming a lawyer. Like if he were right. great, but that's not the deal. No. It's wild. It's all wild. Then Jenny dies. Yep. And Oliver doesn't cry because he's a man. And Mm. men don't cry. They sure don't. But then he goes out into the lobby of the hospital and his dad is there and he's like, I found out what you needed the money for. Why didn't you just tell me, son? Is there anything else we can do for Jenny? Oh, my God. And Oliver's like, she's dead. And his dad hugged him and he's like, and then I did what I'd never done in his presence before. I cried. And that's the end of the book. Yep. It's like you just, you created this really cool Italian girl. 
and her wonderful, wonderful dad. So you could learn to, like, say more than four words to your father. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's it. You don't even get get her funeral. No. No. You don't get any. She doesn't have any friends. He doesn't have. I mean, he has like one friend. Yeah, like that roommate and I guess a couple of guys from the hockey team. But yeah, I, I did notice that. I was like, wait, Jenny is like smart and talented and yeah very feminist yeah and like obviously is able to you know has enough intuitive abilities that she can you know sort of assess people's character really quickly and is very witty right that woman has a great circle of friends in real life huge Friends who like super care about her and would come to her wedding, even if they had some misgivings about the groom and and then would absolutely rally around her in her terminal illness. Like, yeah, what are nowhere? What are you doing, Eric Siegel? Yeah. And like, and why are you a fellow conditionally white ethnic person like, like, why do you have such a hard on? Why white privilege? Yeah, and like, why are you? Well, I guess I can understand that part of it. Like, you know, like wanting yeah. access to to things and seeing white privilege as like the key that opens the door to access to all those things. But like, why is he can like perpetuating these really gross stereotypes about Italian Americans? Like. Why? I guess, why didn't he, I guess if he was going to do that, why didn't he just make the female protagonist Jewish? Unless he's filled with self-loathing, in which case, okay, got got it. But like, I just. (sighs) It's a very aggravating book. It's very aggravating. It's very lazy. Yeah. I I did think, I, I had occasion to think, oh my God. Is Oliver Barrett in some way like the, in quotation marks, literary progenitor of Matthew Livingston, the inaccessible, extremely privileged boyfriend in the disreputable history of Frankie Landau (laughs) Banks? Oh, my God. That is a little bit like. He kind of is. He kind of is. This is one of our mutual favorite books, The Disreputable History of Frankie Lindau Banks. Yeah. And yeah, and one of the best things about it is it displays how a major function of possessing enormous privilege is having a certain amount of leeway to pretend you don't care about it. And uh, so you're not there sort of striving all the time. Like you're on the hockey team. So like, you know, two hours at Widener only worth one hour in the field house or whatever whatever um <laughs> you know you're you get to feel great about yourself because like you walk in front of the summa cum laude's uh rather than behind them even though you're only a magna and whatnot God. like you're not you're not just grimily trying to get the most all of the time right so you don't have that social lack of grace that comes with being openly ambitious but you only have that because you know you're always going to have enough. Right. 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 You're There's always never have a question of your survival. More than enough. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And I think it is very similar to the dynamic where that ease and cavalier attitude 
which is, is funny very attractive to Frankie yes. Landau Banks right who's kind of like a a little bit more of a striver I mean she's a legacy yeah. student too her dad went to the same school yeah but but she's Jewish and she's a girl so she doesn't count right right he and he feels extremely comfortable you know with her razzing him very gently very very right. gently because cuz she's so cute and right. she's a girl and like his position of power relative to hers is so much greater right um it makes it very easy uh, for her for for him to have her be a part of his world but like in this extremely limited way yeah, um i think that that is a very 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 apt and telling Comparison, Sophie. Yeah, and there you. was another comparison to YA that had your eyebrows shooting into your head. Oh hairline. my God. Yes. I'm going to read this aloud <laughs> to you. Friends, yeah. you may have read the also wildly popular love romantic weepy, The Fault in Our Stars by Mr. John Green. I read it. Vastly to better, better developed characters. Way better. Yeah. Um, uh, also very emotionally manipulative and I did get angry at it. Understandably. Um, but, you know, I cried many, many, many tears. Yeah. Okay. I'm now, I'm reading the Avon edition of this book, um, which is interesting because it's uh, one of the romance imprints of HarperCollins, the original publisher of this book. And as we've said before, this is not a romance. But anyway. Okay. So here's Jenny is talking about um, how Ollie needs to be, needs to be strong. And he says, I will, I will. Wondering if the always-knowing Jennifer could tell that the great hockey jock was frightened. I mean, for Phil, she continued. It's going to be hardest for him. You, after all, you're going to be the merry widower. Mm. I won't be. I won't be merry, I interrupted. You'll be merry, goddammit. I want you to be merry, okay? Okay. Okay. Yeah. John Green, I need to know. Have you read Love Story? Have you read Love Story? Did you consciously use okay okay in your book about cancer as a reference or is it just accidental yeah is it just something it is the collective unconscious something that i refer to as being real all the time actually real john green as this is a very popular podcast for teens we know you listen to it so please so please 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 tell us we need to know if this is deliberate or accidental I am going to, I haven't added him about this, mm-hmm. but I really want to. I mean, we probably should when the podcast episode comes out. Yeah. I just feel that this is a literary mystery that America needs to know the answer to. We deserve answers, John Green. Yeah. We want to know. Are there Ooh. any other clothing thoughts you've got about this situation? <laughs> Let me look at my post-its and see what I've got. <laughs> um i have a i have another peeve about oliver yeah go for it so eric siegel makes uh i think like a it's a classic blunder um and tries to substitute like in place of like actual character development (laughs) for his leading man he -hmm. just has him use uh french phrases to show like what a carefree snoot he is 
<laughs> and uh, there's one there's one that I couldn't track down this morning as I was uh, flipping back through uh, my copy, but I did find two others. One was Noblesse Oblige, and sure. the other and the other was De Rigueur. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, I mean, those are good. Those are good French phrases. There are good French phrases, and he uses them accurately. I don't have a problem with his usage. It's just like the over reliance on yes. that kind of like carefree. But like really obvious. It's, it's, it's so heavy handed. I really would love to hear from people who love this book and people who love this book and experienced it prior to seeing the movie. Because for me, it just feels very much like you need, like it's very two dimensions and you need a film adaptation to sort of fill some small portion of this context in yes but i mean the book was a bestseller before it was ever a movie and i'm sure there are plenty of people who come to it book first i imagine the person who recommended andrew and craig talk about it wasn't necessarily like this is a garbage book i want you to rail about how bad it is so if you are the person who recommended this book and you love it and you want to set me and sophie straight on all the ways that it worked you can at me about that and probably leave Sophie alone. You can at both of us. Please do. Like, it's not like I want to live in ignorance. True. Uh, and we do like learning how uh, art affects different people differently. Very much. That said, uh, I think we'll do our little wrap up. I don't know what to tell you about Overdue and where to access all of those things. Andrew and Craig can take care of that. But if you'd like to get more of us, you can come and find us at to bossy dames that's substack.com where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter it goes out every friday and in it we share thoughts on thoughts links on links gifts on gifts and our i believe what um impeccably charming and oh no impeccable taste and insouciant charm that's what our tagline is yep so if you want more of that business you can come and find us over there i am also at Mrs. Friday Next on Twitter and Soph. I am at Sophie Biblio on Twitter. So you should please come and direct all of your complaints and praise. Also, you might have some of that to us there. And uh, until then, I guess. Try to be happy. Try to be happy? Yeah. Try to be happy. <laughs> okay. Okay. That was a HeadGum Podcast.